Live from the Pathway Studios in Johnston Proper, you are live from the path. We're coming from the uh, Pathway Studios here in Justin Proper. It's good to be with you. Uh, anyway, what? What? How? How did I got problems already? Yeah. What was it? What was the problem? Mike, it's going super red when you speak. Oh yeah. yeah okay, I got that. I got this under control. That's serious. That sounds really serious. Yeah. I mean, we don't need any. We don't need any problems. We're already like late to the train here. There's no, no reason to continue to have problems. And this has been from Life in the Path, in case you've forgotten me. Uh, it's understandable. Here's what we got going on the show tonight. Uh, first of all, welcome back to us. Uh, thank you very kindly. We're glad to be back. Um, so, so we've got a little bit of catching up to do. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it, but like um, since we've last been on the air, uh, Mike and I have been been to Ethiopia and back. Dan has been from uh, to Zimbabwe and back. And so, uh, I mean... The, 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 and Boof has been gone and not come back at all. Boof's <laughs> <laughs> been wandering the ground somewhere. Um, and so, uh, so here's the deal: no one wants to look through someone else's, uh, you know, vacation slideshow here, ministry work or otherwise. So your goal is to try to try to uh, some. You got like one thing. You got one thing you can one thing you can volunteer, and then one thing we can ask, and then we're going to call it a day on the trips uh, yeah. about stuff that's going on. Uh, and th- th- there was an article. Um, that I saw, it was it was interesting. It was about how artificial intelligence um, predicts why atheism atheism isn't uh, popular. And so, like, they've got a model that says, like, these if these things exist uh, or need to exist for atheism to become popular. And like, I know it was, it was, it was kind of a cool look at it. And so we're gonna we're gonna talk just a little bit through that and see if we can find anything interesting in there. Uh, also, so let's see, we got Mike. We got advice this week. Yeah, of course we do. I haven't looked it up. I completely forgot even how the show runs, so I didn't even look <laughs> it's been a while. to see if there was some available, but I'm certain there is. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's understandable. Okay. All right. So, I mean, I think that's all we got on the show tonight. If we can get that done uh, and, and, you know, cut the tape, I think we'll be just fine. Yeah, I mean, it'll be better than what we produced lately, so. Yeah, yeah, that's right on. All right, so, uh, all right, so, so first, first context, I suppose. So, Mike and I ended up in Ethiopia. Um, well, so, Mike, why don't you kind of set it up just a bit? Uh, so my wife and I had been uh, attempting to uh, adopt out of Ethiopia um, for about the last five years or so, and um, and so you know we've been we've been keeping up with the paperwork and doing all this jazz and 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 every year doing home studies and visits and whatever and paying a fee and blah 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 immigration all this stuff, and so you know when we first opened it up they're like hey it's three years is about the how long it'll take I'm like yeah that's fine I don't care that's not a big deal at all. And I'm like, well, it's getting a little clogged up. We think it'll probably take four years. I'm like, that's no problem at all, yeah. So, uh, you know, a year, uh, year later, they're like, okay, we think five years will cover it. Uh, and then you'll definitely have this baby. So I'm like, great, this is no problem. Uh, great, this will be the year. And after five years, Ethiopia decides they no longer want to do international adoption. <laughs> and that's rough. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then we, don't, we don't adopt from Ethiopia. And so, um, long story short, like, uh, you know, God had provided... Um, you know, a way for us to to be able to do this. It's, it's you know kind of expensive to uh, adopt internationally, and and um, it wasn't really on our radar until you know we felt like God had brought it up. And then 
all of a sudden, five years later, it's it, we're not going. <laughs> it's just it's not happening, and and I sit confused. I'm like, boy, I feel like this was the thing, and, and maybe it wasn't the thing. And you know what we're gonna have to do? We're gonna have to go to Ethiopia <laughs> and and see what the thing is. Maybe I just half misunderstood what was going on here. And so my wife went over in September um, of last year and absolutely fell in love with the place. Just thought it was greatest. Had a heart for for every kid, every orphanage they visited and stuff. And and um, and so. I, you know, she's like, you know, you gotta go. And so I said, well, you know, we have we have the ability to go. We should probably take somebody with us. And so I asked Ben if he wanted to go, and he said, yeah. And so um, we went over there to, you know, kind of look at the because the international adoption had been shut down. Um, they don't do income in country fostering or in country adoption very well. It's an option, but the the culture just doesn't do it. And so we were visiting orphanages that were starting to take on kids, um, you know, and. and due to the, the no longer international adoption thing. And so um, that's what we were doing over there. And uh, there were some very, very cool experiences um, with them. There were some very humbling experiences over there in Ethiopia um, with the kids and whatever. And, and, you know, nothing has changed. I still have a heart to adopt kids from over there. But there's there's things about um, their community that I just could not envy anymore. Um, they seem to do community uh, amazingly well. They take care of each other within the orphanages community at least um, very, very, very well. It's kind of, it's kind of cool to see. All right, that's the setup on Ethiopia, Dan. Yeah. So I think we talked about this a little bit before you left, but like, um, quick, quick setup on Zimbabwe. Yeah, we became uh, partners with Hippo Valley Christian Mission. They have twenty-seven schools, uh, two uh, working on three medical clinics. Uh, the, the, the schools each have churches. Uh, the churches uh, or the schools also have these clubs called Living Proof, which is uh, children there. They're educating and, and have sponsorship type things. Uh, the two orphanages, uh, Bible College, they just have a, a, a quite a web throughout Zimbabwe. So we partnered with them uh, so that we could uh, do some ministry, uh, help them out, and then leave. And there would still be them there. To, to, to finish the job type thing, you yep. know, because the, the goal is discipleship, right? Uh, not just to make a splash. So um, and that's, what, that's what we did. We partnered with the church. We, we, we uh, did some pretty cool things. Uh, we're still hearing some neat reports uh, about uh, the stuff that went on there. And um, uh, it, we had a group of 10, and uh, I'd say it was pretty life-changing for them as well. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. Uh, and so I, I, don't, I guess I don't really have a setup, but I kind of covered mine. Uh, ended up there uh, just in kind of tagging along to something that, um, that that Mike and his family were kind of invested in. And um, and I agree, it was um, there, there were life-changing um, parts of that as well for me. All right, so Mike, uh, takeaway. From the, from the trip? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. Whew. I don't know. You know, I, actually, my wife asked me the same thing when when I got back, and I I didn't know that I could answer right. Like I, I don't process that fast. Things that are bigger than me like that, yeah. like I don't I don't process it that fast. I know that um, that there's a I, I don't want to say forced simplicity about the way that that some of the situations we ran into. That I thought, man, they just they're able to find so much joy in situations that like would be completely depressing to me and i thought that's foul on me that's big time foul on me <laughs> you know like 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 the either case i i think there was a there was a simplicity and there was an openness that god is um still doing things and still very powerful in the eyes of a lot of people and uh, sometimes our our society misses that we miss we miss community for 
uh, stuff and status. And, and, and I, I think if I'm if I'm starting to grasp something that I pulled away from there, um, that that might be that might be where I take it. All right, all right, Dan, take away from Zimbabwe. Um, that that what we do matters. You know, you kind of go, you think, okay, really, we're going for a couple weeks. Um, we're just a handful of people. What, what are we going to do? You, you know, uh, we, we're doing it here uh, to to some success, but nothing exciting. You know, nobody's you know inviting us to speak at conferences or anything. You know, it's just like we're just we're just doing our thing. Um, why would we spend all kinds of money to go over there and do the same thing that they can do themselves? And uh, it, it matters. It really, it really does. We, we met uh, one of the guys we we worked with. Uh, he is in, in. He oversees the the. I can't remember. It's twenty six or twenty seven. I should look that up. The schools and the pastors. Each school has a has a church. So he oversees the pastors, and they're called patrons who oversee the the uh, living proof kids. Uh, his story is incredible. Um, he he's a just a, an amazing Christian man dedicated to Jesus. You know, I mean, gee, he's just this neat guy. I just love sitting down and talking to him. We, we got to spend hours with him because you get in the truck, it takes hours to go places. And um, anyway, back back in the day, you know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, a, a group of white people showed up and had a revival at a church. And he heard the rumor there were white people. And he thought, what, what do white people look like? I mean, you know, it's like, yeah. What do they want? Yeah, I mean, they 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 they've got to look. They got to look funny. I mean, they, you know, the, how do you, you know, he's just trying to figure out. And yep. so he went just out of curiosity. Didn't speak the language. He speaks Shona, and so he didn't have a clue what uh, they were saying. Um, but you know, he, he there was an interpreter and stuff. He, he 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 discovered that that the message was that there is a God who loves you, and um, and, and that we love you too. And and he went home. And, and he couldn't let that go, and he ultimately became a, a believer, a follower, follower of Jesus, and uh, grew up in the church. Uh, it's, it's one of these Hippo Valley mission churches, and uh, now he's like over all this stuff. And the big deal is his, he comes from a, a long line of spiritualists. Uh, his, his mom was in heavily involved in, in like, he, like the, the village healer and, and, and demonic activity and, and uh, some of the stuff you might see in the Hollywood movies, like she, she lived it. Um, and you know, speaking voices and accents and genders and, and languages that she's never known, uh, contacting the dead, all, you know, this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and like he would have been next. I mean, he would have been raised in that. And he would have been the next guy for the village. And uh, Jesus changed everything because this group of white people showed up for a week and said, "Hey, God loves you." And, and I guess I guess I needed to hear that because you know you spend, that's a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort to go halfway across the globe to do the same thing we're doing here and uh it, it really is worth it and uh so that that was my i guess that was my big take home that it, it, it was it was good it was good there's there's god things happening simply because of who we are not that we're special but that people saw us like as a freak show <laughs> you know right uh, let, let's go see the white people and uh we, we were able to just because of that say hey god loves you and so do we and uh, we, we we showed them some pretty tangible ways, uh, some love. So, you know, we never take that tact in this country, and we should do it more often, right? You got to figure out the weirdest thing you could possibly be, like <laughs> to say, "Hey, look, there's people dressed as dancing umbrellas, and I cannot understand what they're doing here." And they show up just to check it out, merely because there's dancing umbrellas, and then you whip out the gospel. Well, we don't ever try that here. But you know, what? I think that's where some of the churches have, have uh, in 
from a good motive, some of the craziness of the attractive model church has done some crazy things, having literal circuses and stuff on their stage. Right. Yeah. We've already tried that. Yeah, right. yeah, so actually we have done that, but then, but then they, they, they don't disciple. You know, yeah. you've got to, you need the other half. You know, if, if it's just the show and just the circuit freak act, then you're just being freaks. And, well, that's uh, true after a certain extent. You know, I mean, like if you yeah. paraded white people in there all the time, right. they'd lose their novelty and they're like, it's just another white guy. It's just another white yeah, and they think we all look exactly alike, which is really funny. Because, you know, like we have different colored hair. I mean, you know, there's so many features, bigger, smaller, all that stuff. And they're right. like, oh, I can't tell one from another. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's pretty good. But, and, and they're just so loving. They're just they're so wonderful. Like, like you guys noticed, too. It's just, they're so full of joy. They live in dirt, literally. And, and they walk in dirt. And, and, and they're just full of joy. And, and they're, they're, they're just cool. It's just great to partner with that. Yeah, and I think that that um, I would echo that. That was part of I think my takeaway. Uh, if I could, there's maybe there's a couple in here, but like um, it, it was um, seeing seeing like joy and like what's what felt like natural, like a natural sense of community. And like there, part of the lesson was is that like I think we we try to to do that here, but like we we simply aren't in the same situation. I think we have to recognize that like when when your community looks like people that are literally next door and like the store of which you buy thing, like every corner in Ethiopia has got brooms and soccer balls and Fanta. Like every store has got it and it's within 20 feet of any given person at any given time. Right. And so like, if that is your community, like you will kind of naturally have a closeness because you are close. Um, it takes effort to try to reproduce that in a, in a society where, uh, and so like, like, uh, this, uh, Dan pathway is a good example, right? Like you've got people coming in from all over the place. Right. And so it's, so it's actually, um, it, it is not as natural and like we, tr we try to build it in and I think there's ways to kind of do it, but like it, it just, it, it isn't the same thing. And I think we actually do have to recognize it's not, it's just not quite the same as um as that that is kind of where everybody is always at is kind of in, in this in this focused area but like I, I think in general seeing seeing people um treat each other in that way like there was just such selflessness especially in like the orphanages um there was, there was like an orphanage that's got 200 girls in it and like they were handing out stuff um, that we had brought for donations and stuff and like there were two girls that were kind of in charge and they kind of they like they knew all the girls they knew all the girls, and they knew what all the girls needed. So, like, they would be like, oh, you know what? This person needs this. Oh, this person needs this. And I thought, like, I mean, I know 200 people, but I, I, I could not tell you. I probably couldn't give you all their names, nor could I tell you what it is they needed at any yeah. given time, you know? Um, and so it, I think there are aspects of that. But then I think there are, there are aspects, too, of, of kind of, Dan, what you were talking about is, um, it, like, they seemed like, small things even the dis the distance was big but like the stuff you were doing you certainly can do anywhere right. um and it, it actually reminded me of two things it thought it thought like um even even small efforts on we brought a bunch of uh, suitcases empty suitcases for some of the orphan girls who like who were leaving the orphanage they wanted to give them something that made it feel like we weren't just they weren't just saying put your put your junk in a in a, in a sack and go go away Right, like a suitcase means you're you're a legit person. You have you have something of what you carry your stuff in, and so like I mean, it, it took a lot of effort. We got like twenty four empty suitcases over, um, and so so. That, but it just seemed so. It wasn't much, right? It didn't like it didn't cost much. It was an effort to get it there, but it didn't cost much. But but it reinforced the fact that, um, like, yeah, just just do the things, just the effort, just put the effort into it. Like it, it will it will find its way to light somewhere and then also kind of pointed out to me that like I don't know that I believe that here it's true here 
but I don't think I believe that here. Because uh, I can easily say they don't have access to suitcases. Hey, we got them some suitcases. Big deal. Cost me $2 per suitcase at the, at the Goodwill or something. Um, I would think to myself, I can't help somebody with a suitcase here. But like in concept, yeah, you can. Like some of those, like those same things do actually apply here. And I think I need a reminder that, that um, our small things may be different small things, but they, they do have kind of the same impact. And so um, you, you get a bit of a mountaintop experience for being in another place, being the person that has resources to actually help when no one else has resources. It's cool. It's fun to have resources and be able to legit help people and make a significant difference. Um, but like just because you're not that here – um, doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have the same opportunity. Like what we have, we don't call them orphanages, but like there, there still are kids who could use someone to come visit them and yeah. say hi and read books and like do just do stuff like that. And so um, it's a good reminder that um, don't 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 write things off and say, look, um, everybody who needs taking there's there's plenty of organizations, there's plenty of people. These things certainly must be getting taken care of. That's um, not necessarily true. Just start asking around to things you care about and jump on in on it. You know what's cool is, I mean, uh, it, it puts you in a surreal place where, like, all week we basically got to go around and listen to other people talk and provide them with things and help people and be interested in their lives. And, and it was really fun. Like, it was really fun. And you don't get to do that. I don't get to do that here. Right? Here I have to go to work and do stupid things that I don't like. And then I get to take a week and do literally all the things that the kingdom of God says will bring you joy. And it was, and and he wasn't kidding. Like God ain't not making things up, right? Like I, we spent we spent a bunch of money that wasn't even mine. People donated it, and I said, well, we get to say, what do you guys need? And they're like, we need this. I'm like, we'll go get this, and then we went to go get it, and yeah. it was awesome. And they're like, you need three. We need three, and we're like, here's ten. Yeah, but here's because ten. you had it. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah. It was really the the one of the, the things I always remember is we went the the orphanage with a couple hundred girls in it. They're like, no, we can't, we can't accept anything. We've gotten our government rations or whatever, and so if you give us more, then it'll look bad, and then they'll stop our government rations. I'm like, okay, well, can we bring soda? They're like, yeah. So we bought like 200 Fanta, Cle- cleared the place out of Fanta, right, and go to this orphanage. And these girls are so appreciative that we brought it. Mm-hmm. Ten of them try to give it back as a gift for giving it to them in the first place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm like. I don't know what to do with you guys. Like, my kids literally would have taken a fan and ran away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and barely acknowledge that it came out of the car and be like, Fanta, right on. <laughs> no, thank you. Just Fanta, gone. Wow. And these kids are trying to present it as if they've owned it. We came back the next day. It's half gone. And they're still trying to pawn it off. They haven't drunk it all. They're keeping it around. And they're like, here, want some Fanta? I'm like, I know. You, I, we gave you a Fanta yesterday. Drink that Fanta. And it was, it was, just, it was, it was just wild. It was wild to see that type of generosity. Yeah. Who is so appreciative of that that they have have something that they try to give it back to you as a gift? We, we had the same same group of girls. Um, like someone had brought it, like a bunch of friendship bracelets and handed them out to them. And I ha- I have two on my arm right now because those two girls got them and they're like, hey, we want to give you these friendship bracelets. <laughs> and they awesome. do have a penchant for Justin Bieber, which is terrible. <laughs> which is terrible. Yeah, yeah. There was a guy. There was a guy with us, and he was a younger teenage guy. And he's he's a he's an all right kid, you know. He's cool, but but like <laughs> they loved him. They thought he was they thought he was Justin Bieber. And so they're trying to get him to sing tunes and whatever. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm old. <laughs> I don't want to sing no Justin Bieber tunes to a bunch of teenage kids. It's terrible. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty funny. So, so Dan, before you left, we you we had talked about the prospect. We we were talking about like um, 
what do you do with your life? <laughs> and like, it came up that it was a possibility you were going to do some street evangelism in Zimbabwe. Did that come to fruition? Right. You, you know what? They canceled that because of the elections coming up. Um, there was just a lot of concern for turmoil. And, and the government officials were watching this. Yeah. Um, and they even came to the revival and everything. And they used to say, you know what? They're going to think we're there trying to persuade votes. Oh, and right. So we, we left these little evangel, evangel cube, it's called. And, and the kids loved it. And then uh, someone had found it. It's like this picture block thing that you change the pictures and it tells the gospel. And, hey, cool. and yeah, it was, it was actually kind of fun. And uh, so the, the, they were eating that up. And, but uh, yeah, we didn't go out on the street. Dang, no Zimbabwean street evangelism for them. <laughs> I really wanted to hear how that had been. I know. Yeah. It would have been crazy. <laughs> No, I'll tell you though, at, at the at the at our orphanage we went to, we we brought shoes, right? Yeah. And, and half these kids don't have shoes, or some had like their toes were sticking out. I mean, it was like it, it was it was a legitimate need, and, and we had this whole pile of new shoes we brought in uh, that our kids decorated and stuff uh, at last Christmas and left notes for them and stuff. It was it was really pretty cool. Yeah. But um, and the kids were super excited to get shoes, but we didn't have enough. I mean, we you know we didn't know oh, yeah, how right. many how many it happened, and. and um, the disappointment, but they didn't show the disappointment of like that. You know, there was no no whining, there was no looking dejected. It was just like, okay, you know, we just don't get any. Yeah. And and then later on, we went and gave some people money to buy some and give. You know, they they got shoes, but just not when we were there. Um, I don't know that just impressed me with them too, because because can you imagine our kids? They'd be you know on the floor kicking oh, their yeah. Yeah. legs up and down. But so and so got shoes. They got shoes. I don't have shoes. I want Spider Man shoes and. Uh, they just were just like, well, I guess we don't get any. Yeah. I mean, they were trying to stuff their feet into two size, two small shoes. Oh, no, this works. We're like, no, that's <laughs> no, no, no. That's going to hurt you. <laughs> and it's, yeah, so it was just pretty cool that the, their attitude and, and, and well, like we already said, the joy and contentment, um, even when something didn't work out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sweet. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait uh, we didn't exhaust all the questions. Anybody have any other questions? No. Okay, here we go. <laughs> uh, here's the article. This is from The Atlantic. Um, and this was just from uh, July of this year. And, it's, and the article started, Artificial Intelligence Shows Why Atheism is Unpopular. And so I'll give you a little bit of the premise here. Um, they said, imagine you're the president of a European country. You're slated to take in 50,000 refugees from the Middle East this year. Most of them are very religious, while most of your population is very secular. You want to integrate the newcomer seamlessly, minimizing the risk of economic, economic malaise or violence, but you have limited resources. One of your advisors tells you to invest in the refugees' education. Another says providing jobs is the key. Yet another insists the most important thing is giving the youth opportunities to socialize with local kids. What do you do? Uh, well, you make your best guess and hope the policy you choose works out. But it might not. Even a policy that yielded great results in another place or time may fail miserably in your particular country under its present circumstances. If that happens, you might find yourself wishing you could hit a giant reset button and run the whole experiment over again, this time choosing a different policy. But, of course, you can't experiment like that, not with real people. You can, however, experiment like that with virtual people. And that's exactly what the Modeling Religion Project does. An international team of computer scientists, philosophers, religion scholars, and others who are collaborating to build computer models that they populate with thousands of virtual people or agents. As the agents interact with each other and with shifting conditions in their artificial environment, their attributes and beliefs, levels of economic security, of education, of religiosity, and so on, can change. Uh, so, so in general, what they're trying to do is to say, how do we make policy decisions that put people at risk or try to understand kind of a mass behavior of people with a ton of different variables without actually kind of playing a let's see what happens type of game? So can we use artificial intelligence 
and kind of um, these created environments to model and figure out what people are going to do. So someone's programming, uh, this is what a Muslim does. That's right. That's what a Christian does. That's and, right. And that, that, interesting, interesting, interesting to be part of that conversation of how do you decide how to program a Christian. Yes, yeah, exactly right. Actually, that, that's a really good question. And they have, so everything is online, like it's an open source tool. And so they said the goal of the project is to give politicians an empirical tool that will help them assess competing policy options so they can choose the most effective one. Um, and it said because all of our models are transparent and the code is always online, if someone wanted to make people more in-groupy, more anxious about protecting their rights and their group from the threat of others, then they could use the model to figure out how to ratchet up anxiety. And so, like, it runs the... Um, the article will kind of spec this out later on, but like Dan kind of nailed one of the risks of this, right? Like um, it's, it's trying to kind of say this is how people behave with these when these attributes are present and they have this belief system or whatever, right? I can't even say how Christians act. Yeah, I know it's such a wide gamut. Yeah, yeah. I, can say how I think they should. Right, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. So um, it's so there was one that focuses on. Uh, refugees, and then the, this was the interesting part, and where the title of the article come, come, come from, comes from, using the same kind of basic premise. It says, another project forecasting religiosity and existential security with an agent-based model. That's the title. I can't read articles like this. I know. Actually, so, again, you've probably experienced this, too. Like, um, it, it isn't true necessarily for, like, um, the, theology, uh, theological, like, commentaries. Like, people who are writing books don't necessarily tend to do this. But people who are publishing articles about theology tend to do the longest names for things, like yeah. like like they they're explaining it's their sentences to as the book is or the article title um, to to make it real super clear what it is that they're talking about and like it's outlandish. Yeah, they can't just come up with like a single uh, single uh, title for things. So anyway, it says it examines the questions about non-belief. Why aren't there more atheists? Why is America secularizing at a slower rate than Western Europe? Which conditions would speed up the process of secularization or conversely make a population more religious? And so uh, the guy's team tackled these questions using data from the International Social Survey Program conducted between 91 and 98. They initialized the model in 1998 and then allowed it to run all the way through 2008. It says we were able to predict from that 1998 data in 22 different countries in Europe and Japan whether and how belief in heaven and hell, belief in God, and religious attendance would go up and down over a 10-year period. We were able to predict this in some cases up to three times more accurately than linear regression analysis, uh, Schultz said, referring to a general purpose method of prediction that prior to the team's work was the best alternative. So um, in general, maybe you could think of the, that as we looked at data over the last 50 years and saw its trend and then assumed it would continue in the same way with a few variables that otherwise might impact it. Um, this is saying we were three times closer than that kind of historical regression model. So that history, uh, regression model, that's basically how they figured out uh, carbon dating. They look to see how carbon, uh, whatever, dates over the last X 50 years or whatever. And then extrapolate it forward. Yes, yeah, after yeah, that. Yeah. Okay, I'm with you. All right, so using a separate model, Future of Religion and Secular Transitions, the team found that people tend to secularize when four factors are present. Mm -hmm. See if these make sense. Um, existential security, you have enough money and food. Personal freedom, you're free to choose whether to believe or not. Pluralism, you have a welcoming attitude to diversity. And education, you've got some training in the sciences and humanities. If even one of these factors is absent, the whole secularization process slows down. This, they believe, is why the U.S. is secularizing at a slower rate than Western and Northern Europe. So, with thoughts. What are, what are we lacking of those four? Is it the diversity? What is it? What do you think? 
Hold on. What were the four options again? You have enough money and food. Yeah. So security, enough money and food, uh-huh. personal freedom. You're free to choose whether to believe or not. Pluralism. You have a welcoming attitude to diversity and education. You've got some training in the sciences and humanities. We've got all of it. I mean, because we're not good at the sciences and humanities, or is it the diversity? I think it's the diversity thing. Mike thinks it's diversity, Dan. Uh, yeah, I'm going to guess they say it's diversity, although I, they're pushing it so hard, it's, it's there. I mean, Dan says we might just be burnt out. <laughs> We've already seen it, passed it on. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think, I, th- I think, I mean, I live in my own bubble, but I don't have a problem with anybody. So I guess I'm diverse. I don't know. Uh, so, so I mean, they, they seem like real, um, I mean, you could easily be offended by this, right? Because you're saying, I, like, the existent- existential security, you have enough money and food. Um it does actually make sense to me. I, I'm kind of interested in what they mean by enough money, right? Enough food might be a slightly different thing, but this goes back to what I think what we were just talking about, about some of the, the stuff in Africa, is that like um, when I, I do consider kind of an excess amount of stuff starts to create a blindness. It starts to create, um, you believe you control more things than you do, <laughs> um, and it gives a false impression. And so um, that actually does make sense. You don't, um, when you feel like you have enough power, you do not have to lean on a higher one. And so perhaps you don't. Um, the personal personal freedom, you're free to choose whether to believe or not. That also makes sense, although there's probably a difference between what people believe or and what they actually believe and what they otherwise cop to believing, right? Like, so if I'm in a kind of a, um, a, an authoritarian state of which I have to believe this thing, you don't have a way to evaluate whether I actually believe it and follow it. You just know whether I say that I do, probably for protection reasons, so that you don't come after me or my family based upon what I say I believe. Like the Barn surveys. <laughs> yes, like yeah. the barn surveys. Yeah, right on. <laughs> um, so in that way, pluralism, you have a welcoming attitude, diversity. Like, that's a super big, I, I'm sure there's more detail actually in the study itself, but like, um, a diversity of what? You know, it's, it's, it's a significantly broad category of um, what is diverse. Like, are you saying that, that you are welcoming to other religions, other races, other situations, other choices, yeah. or whatever, yeah. Um, so anyway, so they, they, here's the, uh, the result, the why the U.S. is secularizing at a slower rate than Western Europe and Northern Europe. It says the U.S. has found ways to limit the effects of education by keeping it local. And in private schools, anything can happen, huh. said Schultz collaborator Wesley Wildman, a professor of philosophy and ethics at Boston University. That's the best. Yeah. He probably says it Wildman, but yeah. I mean, I would say it Wildman. Wildman. <laughs> Uh, because we don't have a universal educational system. Yeah, I think that's what they're saying, and I, I wonder if the implication is, is that it that means you know, private schools or local control over education means that they may not be teaching extensively in sciences and humanities that otherwise may point you away from um, a belief system. Yeah, but I mean, wouldn't the flip side be true? Is like because there's certain parts of the sciences that I go, your because of of my religion, uh, I think what you're saying is a stretch. Yeah. Right, like some of the, some of the scientific theories that I find are are, are possibly coming from this wild man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like they they're they're shots in the moon. They're poor science, actually. And so, like what they're defining as the study of uh, science and humanities, they're they're, they're saying, hold on now, this is part of the same wheel because <laughs> science and humanities that is atheism, right? And you're saying if you don't believe in, in science and the humanities or AKA atheism strongly, then you will be more religious. Well, yeah. <laughs> that uh, makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so I, I suppose that is the point, because um, it's not a, like, we, we would make distinctions here, right? Like, it's not a matter of accepting or believing or studying science or humanities. It's the question is, do I allow those things as the, um, as the prism through which I define my worldview, right? Do I say, because you say this thing, 
I believe this is my core focal point, and then I digest everything else through it, through either the discussion about humanities or, like, depending on what you're studying, uh, sciences. Um, and I, I would say, like, I have a core focal point of uh, of a belief in in God, and then everything gets digested kind of through that same thing, which isn't a necessarily rejection of humanities or sciences. But what it says is, is like, I'm not saying this is the prism through which I digest the word, which seems to be kind of the implication here, is that as you get exposed to those types of things, then you allow everything to throw go through that prism, and then um, you may kind of discard other things. And I suppose, to be clear, this is not a Christianity question. It's a, it's a secularization question. It's atheism versus a belief system. Atheism versus everything. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, we abandon the concept of a higher power relative to you don't you don't feel like you have any need for them um, because you're, you're, you're secure... Um, you recognize, and I think the implication here from a diversity standpoint is that because everyone doesn't believe the same thing as you, um, the sheer number of other options should bring you some sort of doubt that, that the thing that you believe is the true thing. Uh, because if I welcome a diversity of thought and I otherwise treat them as viable, um, it should bring a natural question as to why you think the thing that you believe uh, is, is yeah, better than theirs. But once again, like I mean, it's not like you can't welcome diversity without taking it on. right? Like, like These things are not mindless thugs. That like just because a, uh, a, a Buddhist rolls in, I mean, I can like the guy and think he's all right, but it doesn't make me a Buddhist merely because he's here. And so, like, you're, the ability for say the humanities, we'll call them, to take you over as if you're a symbiotic host for whatever they're bringing, seems to be the 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 stretch. Yeah. So I mean, like, what this seems to me though is like, and so I can digest it from like a Christian perspective, is these seem like um, uh, proper separation points. Right of what otherwise might have been a shallow belief anyway, right? Like if I'm following if I'm following God simply because I expect Him to provide me something, and the presence of food or money would allow me to say, oh, I don't need Him anymore. Well, then, I, right? That, that wasn't like a core belief system. It was a it was a personal use, a cudgel, a, a, a way to get something that I wanted. Um, when you're when you're free to choose whether or not to whether to believe or not, that's actually the opposite. That is a some sort of institutional, it's government or otherwise. Um, or even religious kind of oligarchy stuff that otherwise forces a belief on you and you don't have a choice. Again, that, that doesn't necessarily imply that you have a, a true faith in something. It just says uh, it is in your best interest to say that you do or to appear that you do. Um, the welcoming, the you have a welcoming attitude to diversity. And it, again, that says that um, that's actually a core question of is there, is there a, a, a truth? Is there something, a, one thing that is true, even if other things are not true? Um, to the extent that I am less, or that I'm ambiguous about a uh, a universal truth or truths, um, then it's hard to be able to say I believe in this higher power and you do not. Um, but we can't reconcile either one of those two things, and so you're naturally going to give it up. And then the final one, like if you get some education, that just assumes that the reason you don't follow these, um, that you haven't given up on God, is because you don't know enough. And then once we teach you these right things, then you will stop doing that. I mean, that's kind of the implication of now. I I don't know that they're not implying that with with the study because I actually think it's probably true. I think some of those things are accurate. I think you know people have um, faiths that they are that are not um, actually you know core to their belief system, and so any one of these things might cause them to say, "Oh, well, this seems like a better option. I'll just I'll just do that then." So I mean, I, I don't know that they're wrong or they're actually targeting negatively religion. I think those things are probably true, but I think we. Um, I think you, I would interpret the results differently than saying, oh, it's because people are actually, like, their minds are getting straight as opposed to, like, there's just they either weren't committed to begin with or um, they're going for personal reasons or otherwise. They're just going with other ideas. 
All right. So he had said, uh, yeah, the U.S. has found ways to limit the effects of education by keeping it local. Lately, there's been encouragement from the highest levels of government to take a less than welcoming cultural attitude to pluralism. These are forms of resistance to secularization. Um, there's another project, um, Mutually Escalating Religious Violence, aims to identify which conditions make xenophobic anxiety between two different religious groups likely to spiral out of control. What do you think, Mike? Two, two different religious groups, um, they, they obviously don't get along. What needs to be present for things to spiral out of control? A crazy person in either camp. Like a, like a dominant personality? Yeah. Calling things forward? Yeah. Dan, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I guess I'd, like the extreme extreme views of either side. I mean, which usually comes from a dominant person, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm understanding their question. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, here here's an example. Um, they were looking at um, there was a 2002 riots that erupted in uh, the Indian state of Gujarat. Three bloody days during which Muslims and Hindus clashed violently, resulting in hundreds of deaths on both sides. Uh, according to the f- official figure, 790 Muslims and 254 Hindus were killed. When I started, hey man, they, the Hindus got the upper hand, unexpected. Yeah. Uh, when I started looking at the data, I said to LeBron and Wes Wildman, oh my, oh my gosh, because I knew the case of Gujarat and what happened there. It, it tracked the model beautifully. Um, so she says, it shows that mutually escalating violence is likely to occur if there's a small disparity in size between the majority and minority groups, less than a 730 split. And if agents experience outgroup members as social and contagion threats, or they worry that others will be invasive or infectious, it's much less, much less likely to occur if there's a large disparity in size or if the threats agents are experiencing are mostly related to predators or natural hazards. So the, the, they, only, they only throw to violence when they think that they're threatening their way of life, right? If the Hindus are trying to take over, the Muslims are like, we ain't doing the Hindu thing, so now we're going to fight it out. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, so anyway, they're they're working through these uh, through these models, and one of the things that they're struggling with is the, the uh, they're trying to get people to adopt them and try them out in other real world scenarios. Um, but they're having a hard time. Like people are distrustful of the model of the data of what it points to, um, because there is people are not predictable like that, are they? Like I mean, it's just like you said before. Who, what's a model Hindu look like? Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like I mean, I can tell you what. The Bible lays out for a follower of Christ, and I can tell you, I have met one guy <laughs> that seems to pull that off consistently, and his name is Jesus. But <laughs> everybody else, like they're just they're unpredictable in in the in, in their ways. There, there's a certain amount of consistency, but like I don't know that you could throw it into a model. I mean, what tells you what tells you one day that I that I that I will tolerate X amount of whatever. And then the next day, I'm like, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done tolerating this. And I, I personally have just changed. But like the de facto 20 copies of me you made to put in the study, do they all flip at the same time? Does nobody flip because their their behavior is so consistent over lifestyle? I mean, how many people did you know 10 years ago that were following Jesus? And you know them right now. They're not. They're just gone. They just decided it ain't for them no more. 10 years. And so you want to try to uh, try to adopt a model that says a Hindu going to be a Hindu for the next 10 years and act in all Hindu ways, that seems really hard to pull off. Yeah. Well, and, and it's hard for someone without faith, in any, in any faith, to, to assess what's really going on with people of faith. Like, like, they probably, the researchers probably looked at these, the Muslims and Hindus, and thought, oh, look, look, this happened, this model happened, blah, blah, blah. My first thought was, man, all of them went to hell, because they're both wrong. You know, like, that's really sad. They lost their eternal souls. I'm, I'm looking at it as a loss because 
none of them are Christians. And right. and, and and the researchers are looking at it, well, this religion versus that religion, because we're all on equal grounds, we're all we're all right, you know, nobody's wrong. And, uh, that kind of clouds the water. So that makes me not trust, you know, the research. I mean, I don't know if they didn't imply their eternal state, Dan. I think they were just not speaking to it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, because they don't even think of it that way. But but as a bully, as a Christian, I'm thinking, for those who are eternal souls, you know, it wasn't just people who died. They went to judgment. Yeah, and actually, I think there's, um, I, I think there's, and maybe it's a step um, in, a, in a slightly different direction for that, but I think it's the same basic premise, which is... Um, you cannot evaluate, um, or I think it'd be very difficult to, to, to make tangible or quantify um, the extent or what, what the passion through which people believe things. Yeah. Right. Uh, through which um, a level of importance, because like you can you can kind of arbitrarily say like these these are the, these are what these groups value, but the extent to which they value them or the consequences that they think are associated with them, and that, frankly the disparity of that among religious groups or within religious groups is very difficult because um, like how many like the, 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 we we i think we've, we've talked about this in this room right like um uh, evangelism and discipleship these are things that these passing out good news that changes the world i don't do enough of it i want to do more i'm not doing enough so like you i have an internal conflict good luck putting me on the page right and so like and then spread that out among kind of various belief systems some who have like historically uh acted a lot more uh tangibly in those things than others and um it just it seems super difficult, and so like it maybe not just a it's the it's the fact of not this model, but it's the concept of a model at all that says we can we can speak to this. And I don't I don't know that you have to kind of throw everything out. It seems like there might be um, there might be tells on human behavior, but like it it's if you get to like a minority report aspect where like I'm predicting. It, it, it seems to imply that I will I can know more than I can know, which is a bit of a god complex already. Yeah, good luck. The Holy Spirit's crazy, right? Like you see people doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. Like a regular Christian dude with with low anxiety and just hanging out, and then you find out a month later he sold everything he owned and decided he was going to win a bagel around and then yeah. go to churches or whatever. And you're like, why? What? Because the world's going to end. It's crazy, <laughs> you know. And like, where's that guy in the model? There's too many crazies to try to put them all in a model. It's just nutty. So it said, uh, even harder to sway maybe those concerned not with the methodology's technical complications, which is kind of what we were talking about, but with its ethical complications. As Wes Wildman told me, these models are equal opportunity insight generators. If you want to go militaristic, then these models tell you what the targets should be, right? So, like, if I know that this is what I need to be able to, say, create violence or, um, like, start an uprising or rile up folks, like... You can use it as a as a as a map. That's right. How to get it done? It's a sourcing tool as opposed to a prevention tool. Yeah. Right. I know who to irritate, and I know in what way. I know how to create the imbalance. Okay. So they gave an example. Said when you build a model, you can accidentally produce recommendations that you weren't intending. Years ago, Wes Wildman built a model to figure out what makes some extremist groups survive and thrive while others disintegrate. It turned out one of the most important factors is a highly charismatic leader who personally practices what he preaches. This immediately implied an assassination criterion, he said. It's basically leave the groups alone when the leaders are less consistent, but kill the leaders of groups that have those specific qualities. It was a shock to discover this dropping out of the model. I feel deeply uncomfortable that one of my models accidentally produced a criterion for killing religious leaders. Yes. <laughs> it does seem to be a problem. <laughs> I mean, but that's the thing. It's like, do we really need the model to understand that? Like a highly charismatic dude that's leading people to do the wrong thing while he does the wrong thing. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, a lot of this does seem pretty common. I mean, is that a real shocker? David Crash is easy to pick out. You know what I'm saying? It's not like you need a model to go, I wonder if those guys are off the wall or going to make it. They have a highly charismatic dude that's dragging them all into weirdness. Yeah, he's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I don't, I don't think the model can be Actually, that. some of this stuff points to, I think, something that we're, um, and I think it's a problem now. I, I, I seem to think that it's going to get worse. Is that, like, as people do analysis, especially, like, macro, broader analysis of human behavior, it starts to build within individuals the sense that you, don't, you cannot know things. Right, that like people behavior can be analyzed to tell you how people truly work, and that your ability on a personal level is degraded. Like that, as a whole society, we we need to study these types of things so that we can so we can understand how things truly are. Because like, how often do we find that like um, the, the implications of a study that says, well, we believed it was this thing, but really the thing works completely opposite. And so studies like that then start to produce in you some sort of hesitation that says, well. I mean, I believe it to be the case, but I don't know if I can be trusted. They found out this thing uh, based upon the study of human behavior and blah, blah, blah. And so, like, if we look at this kind of criteria, right, like, I, I would, if you would maybe guess as to what would be a successful religious cause, uh, someone who's charismatic, who otherwise is faithful to the things that they're, like, practices what they preach, yeah, like, that would, that would be better than someone who, like, tells people to do one thing and then does a complete other. Uh, or is super boring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> and so, like, like I could have told you that without a data model. Um, but, like, the ability to do analysis on such a large scale over things like this, like, and maybe I'm putting this on society and it's really me, but it causes me at times to think, like, I mean, can I truly, maybe I don't actually know these things. Yeah. I don't trust my own analysis. That's right. You can't, you can't even trust your gut where you're like, man, I feel like everybody's, it's just an offhanded comment. I feel like everybody's getting married around me. And then you sit down and think about it, and it's been like two people. <laughs> you know, like, man, I can't assess the situation right. Uh, he says, so this is, um, the, he was talking more about the ethical consideration. He says, results of that model have been published, so it may already even forward military action. Is this the type of thing being used to figure out criteria for drone killings? You know, Wildman, you're kind of a pompous dude to think everybody <laughs> read these models. I even heard about this before today. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he's like, oh, great military strategists are checking out my religious models. <laughs> That's that's pretty beastly. I mean, I think it's time for you know ethical crisis. So like, I mean, I feel like you could have seen this coming, right? Like, like General Schwarzkopf is like, give me the latest copy of the Atlantic. Maybe Wildman has put out something I really need to know. Uh, he said, uh, I don't know because there's this giant wall between the secret research in the U.S. and the non-secret side. I've come to assume that on the secret side, they've pretty much already thought of everything we thought of because they've got more money and are more focused on those issues. But it could be this model actually took them there. There's, that's a serious ethical conundrum. Okay, listen here. Wild Man is this highly charismatic dude he's talking about, right? <laughs> he's leading a band of dudes creating these models. He believes in the models completely, and he is completely egomaniacal, or he thinks everyone is basing their lives off these crappy models that no one's actually ever heard of. Yeah, so actually he continues, and so there's another guy who's going to rebut him, but here's, here's he continues. Uh, yeah, other models raise similar concerns. He said the, the model gives you a recipe for accelerating secularization. And it gives you a recipe for blocking it. You can use it to make everything revert to supernaturalism by messing with some of those key conditions, say, by triggering some ecological disaster. Then everything goes plunging back into pre-secularism. That keeps me up at night. Oh, yeah, what a disaster. People may fall into a belief system based upon a volcano trigger. Okay, first of all, there's repeated events throughout history that say that's not, not true at all. Huh. We've had many natural disasters in the country, and have not have bailed on atheism completely. They're still out there roaring. 
Yeah, but I mean, um, it was uh, it was generally true. Uh, I've heard that like at nine eleven, right? People ended up going back to church. Like, yeah. If, like, okay, but that's the thing is 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 visiting temple or going to church or whatever doesn't necessarily make you religious. It just makes you seeking a comfort somewhere. And that was because a natural disaster happened. Yeah, you right, sought community true. and comfort somewhere, right? And, and and frankly, the Christian church is the best place to find that. Uh, uh, yeah. That's a good question, actually. So, isn't the core isn't the core concept the what what is this guy? This keeps him up at night. So, wild man, it seems to imply that there's a significant risk of people going back to belief systems, like they're going the opposite of what he would call the secularization of it, right? Um, and so, what what is to be feared from a societal perspective of shallow religious belief? Like, not, I'm not, don't answer that from a, a, a people who follow Jesus, here's what we think the risks are. But, like, I wonder what he believes the risks are to, to ecological disaster, and then half the people who, like, hadn't been in a church in years go there uh, for a sense of comfort, but otherwise don't change much about their belief system. What is, what, is the, what is the societal risk that we are hedging against, besides the fact that they are otherwise implying that you just believe something that is false? Which is odd coming from groups of people who don't believe in a true false thing. Like, something can't actually be false. But, like, what, what, what the science and humanities will suffer? People will stop caring about them. And it would be a detriment to our world. Because, frankly, isn't, is, if that's one of the criteria that drives people to atheism or away from religious uh, behavior, um, aren't you implying then if all the people were religious, then those things would move? Right, the education of humanities and science would be less because no one would actually care about it. But that's not a true statement for the religious people now. They right. don't think that. Well, most of them don't think that, right? <laughs> and so, so like once again, I mean, you could not put more of a wild man bent on these models on perceived notions of religious people or how religious people act, want, uh, invest in the world, or act people around them, uh, and then project it on everybody. As if it's the way the world spins because you said so, right? It's like creating a, 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 a um, it's just like I was listening to a guy, it was super interesting, listen to this guy talk about how most of your life anymore, especially connected to your phone, uh, is driven by algorithms that you don't have any control over. You're basically being bossed around by a math equation most of your day, uh-huh. right? And so the same thing is true with Wild Man here. He goes ahead and puts this model together and he goes, you know what, according to my model, every five people is red. And then at the end of the study, he goes, the thing is, we got to maintain this five red people thing. And I can see the world's not trending that way. And they might look at my model and figure out how to squash the five red people thing. But it didn't exist. Wild man put it in there to start with. Right. He created a false reality and then starts to manipulate true reality based upon the implications of the false one. And then cry foul that the red men are getting destroyed. <laughs> and they weren't there, wild man. They weren't there. <laughs> Uh, so if it makes you feel any better, Neil Johnson, a physicist who models terrorism and other extreme behaviors that arise in complex systems, says that's an overstatement of the power of the models. Yes. <laughs> All right, Johnson. <laughs> Shows up from the field. So this is in response to the uh, ecological disaster thing. He says there's no way that removing one factor from a society can reliably be counted on to slow or stop secularization. He said that may well be true in the model, but that's a cartoon of the real world. <laughs> I love this guy. Uh, a real human society is so complex that all the things may be interconnected in a different way than in the model. He's nailed it. Yeah. Uh, although Johnson said he found the team's research useful and important, he was unimpressed by their claim to have outperformed previous predictive methods. Uh, linear regression analysis is not very powerful for prediction, he said. I was a little surprised by the strength of their claims. 
He cautioned that we should be skeptical about the word prediction in relation to this type of model. Opinion might be better. It's great to have as a tool, he said. It's like you go to the doctor, they give an opinion. It's always an opinion. We never say a doctor's prediction. Usually we go with the doctor's opinion because they've seen many cases like this, many humans who come in with the same thing. It's even more of an opinion with these types of models because they haven't necessarily seen many cases just like it. History mimics the past but doesn't exactly repeat it. I like Johnson. He seems to have a head on his shoulders. He's very reasonable. I like him. I agree. <laughs> Uh, he said, the silver lining here is that if the power of the models is being overstated, then so too is the ethical concern. Nevertheless, just like Wes Wildman, Schultz told me, uh, oh, just, just so you know that the writer's not bad, I am intentionally repeating his entire name every time, it just says Wildman. Yeah. Uh, Schultz told me, I lose sleep at night on this. It is social engineering. It just is. There's no pretending like it's not. But he had that other groups like Cambridge Analytica are doing this kind of computational work too. That was the... That was the group that got in trouble for um, Facebook, uh, taking right? Facebook data. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's going to be done, so not doing it is not the answer. Instead, he and the wild man believe the answer is to do the work with transparency and simultaneously speak out about the ethical dangers inherent in it. This is a wild, this is a wild presentation this guy's making. It has to be done, but there's serious risks to it. I really, I, here's the thing. I wish that I, at the end of the night, I felt like I made as big of an impact on the world as wild man does. <laughs> you know, we're like... You know what? I've, I've, because I'm here, this is a weighty day. What I'm doing is important. <laughs> I, lose, dangerous. I lose sleep at night. That's right. This could bring disaster to the world, but it must be done because someone else might be doing it as well. Running a science that didn't exist 50 years ago. They'll make statues of me. Computer analytics is brand new, and all of a sudden it's a game changer. It's taking the world down. We've survived the Black Plague, numerous natural disasters, and measles, and then a wild man's born, and the whole world's in peril. Everybody ends up. I mean, this seems super risky, though, because, like, there is always a market for people who believe, uh, who want to know something that other people don't know, right? So, like, the capability, like, this sounds like the exact type of thing that, like, uh, we might evaluate, the kind of, like, as a, a U.S. government might look at it and be like, eh, you know, there's a lot of problems with this, this, um, you know, we're not going to apply this. And then you get under somewhere where there's, like, um, you're in Venezuela or somewhere, and the guy gets super excited, he's like, you know what, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> and employs it to do, like, ridiculous things in the name of, but this is how people are, and we're trying, we're just trying to protect our folks, and so we're taking these following steps to ensure blah, blah, blah. And so, like, I mean, he's kind of right. Uh, that people are going to do it anyway. I don't know if that means like you do a better job to refine your model so that at least it's effective, and just warn that someone else might be using it ineffectively. Like that—that's like continuing to design uh, to make sure to go through the effort of finding the most powerful, um, like world-destroying weapon you possibly can, and then simultaneously saying, "By the way, someone bad is probably going to use this, but it might as well be exactly what it is supposed to be and act to its perfect specifications." Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How can the bomb be fulfill its greatness if you prevent the bomb from exploding? Then the bomb won't actually be great, and it won't be a bomb at all. Yeah, it's a think piece, like a humanities argument. <laughs> I, here's Wild Man is he's, he's going to sign off. He says that's why our work here is two pronged. I'm operating as a modeler and as an ethicist. Wildman said it's the best I can do. <laughs> and protector of the universe. <laughs> And sometimes I have time to sit on my throne. <laughs> I'm blown away by the egomaniacal properties that Wild Man loses models running. Thanks, seriously. <laughs> I, got, I really should. I should have gone back and read. Like now, I'm super interested in, um, like the commentary around those four things. Um, uh, that that that, uh, that implies secularization. Yeah. 
and, 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 and frankly, the implication you know be interesting. I wonder if anyone has done um, has done like um, a, a, some sort of uh, analysis on like what if you wiped out? Let's just take Christianity for now. Um, Christianity and its impacts in the United States, and just said, look, um, here's here's what the world looks like. Here's what it looks like. Uh, current state. If you were to remove Christianity and things that are like it can at least be tangibly tied to Christians, and so um, you know that, that that impacts uh, the hospitals that were started by Christians, and let's go with like uh, colleges. Most of your major colleges, your Ivy League colleges, are started by Christians. Um, uh, let's go charitable giving. Vast majority are done by Christians. Same is true for a number of adoptions, both international and and within country. And so, like it'd be it'd be interesting to say. Um, the, 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 the implication here is that um, uh, the presence of, of religion um, is, is not good, right? Because, like, you're trying to say, why don't we, what will people take advantage of atheism, uh, of secularization? And, like, if you can scare them or if you can make them so that they need things and they'll, they'll go back to clean to their God, but past that, they'll, they'll move on to more rational thinking. And so it would be interesting to look at, so not only the kind of tangible analysis of what it looks like for, like, where dollars go and where people get adopted and who gets cared for and what care centers are open, but, like, the presence of, um, what does it look like if people don't have that um, uh, stuff in their lives, like, associated with going to communities of, of believers who, uh, and that type of thing, um, where, where, what happens when people need um, solace or whether they're looking for hope or, or like whatever it is, like, what, what does that actually look like in a society where that doesn't exist? Um, I'd be super interesting if someone could like do something like that. Mike, you no, know, you would write that up. No, I've, I've never been so far out of my depth in my life. Man. All I know is it sounds like a sounds like an author writing up a book on how the world is, and then and then trying to keep it from being published because someone might read it and think a tree was a real man. <laughs> Uh, all right, hey, you're, you're losing your life for the path. Uh, thanks for having us. What a bunch of crap. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most ridiculous article. Man. <laughs> I mean, here's, the problem is, is there's there's a thousand dudes out there with glasses on the rim of their nose going, hmm, this is a thing. I'm glad I'm informed of this. What is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of? <laughs> I read this Bible and everybody reads it. No one reads it. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, Mark, what do you got? You, you got some, some dear life from the past? Yeah, let's we'll see what other dandies are out there. <laughs> dear, dear, dear life from the path. My brother, parentheses Nick, was married for 17 years until he got caught cheating on his wife with her much younger niece. Oh, wait, Ooh. with her niece? Yeah. He's 34. She's 20. Oh. They say they are in love. Nick has come to be near family because he's been a stay-at-home dad for the last four years and doesn't have the means to start over without help. They live ten hours away. Problem is, he has asked to stay with me, which would have been fine, but he's bringing along his new love. We all love Nick's wife, and they have three children together. So let his lover stay here with him feels like a betrayal of my sister-in-law. Out of all the siblings, I have the most room. We are recent empty nesters, and I can swing it financially. I suppose I should just get over and help because he's my family. But I'm afraid my husband won't be so forgiving. What? <laughs> no, no final question. Just statements. This is not a. This is not a question of forgiveness. No. Uh, there is like allowing someone to stay in your house and facilitate whatever it is that is going on here is a far different item than uh, forgiving of a situation, if that is even called for at the moment. 
you know, okay, so I have a question. Well, I don't have a question. I have more of a ponder. Right? So I find that I take God's heart well on when bad things have happened to somebody. Right? Like when a situation has been oppressed upon them and uh, they're in a rough space. And I feel like, yeah, okay, I get it. We're, we're, we're ready. You're in a bad space. Let's help get you out of it, right? Yep. I have a harder time when people have made choices that have put them in the bad space. Repeatedly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're in the bad space because they've essentially chosen to be there by the choices that they've made. Uh -huh. So, essentially, that, that's, that's where we're at with Nick here. He's not the guy that has been cheated upon. He is the dude doing the cheating. And now his wife has kicked him out and said, look, I will not tolerate this. Now Nick is essentially homeless. And so people would say, should we help homeless people? And our answer generally would be, well, yes, we should help homeless people. But Nick has chosen to be homeless by cheating on his wife with a 20-year-old member of her family. So now what's the stance, right? Is the grace on the fact that he's homeless different than the grace on the fact, let's say that he kicked his wife out after cheating on her and gave her the boot and she's homeless. You seem to have no problem taking her in, right? You would say, yes, someone should, should help her and take her in. But now Nick is homeless and he's the one that caused it. Do you have a harder time taking Nick in? Is it, is it God's heart for him to feel the weight of that, of that sin for a while? Is that God's decision and not yours? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> <Pass>. <laughs> that, that's it, because you know every person you help uh, is probably I mean, they're they're partially there because of poor choices. You just don't know what they were, and so it's easy to have breaks. like you shouldn't have married Nick in the first place. Well, yeah, what about like the, the the other people down at the homeless shelter? Okay, or Nick they they kick, they kick Nick out too. And you helped put all these other people in the shelter because you're like, you have a heart for them, you care for them. Because yes. you don't know their story. You, you, you don't know the wife they cheated on. Um, you're right, there's an ignorance to that part. Yeah, so it's easy to be like, oh, we just got to love, we got to forgive. And, and all you can think of is his wife sitting at home going, what the heck? Yeah. You, you know? Uh, and, and so those are valid questions. I don't know that I have an answer because I'm, I'm in the same place. I, I feel the same way. Like, Nick, buddy, you need to feel the pain a little bit. You need to not be in my home uh, unless you repent, get rid of this person you're with, and let's try to work on your, your wife, uh, get the marriage re re resolved. Then I'll help you out. I'll, I'll plenty then, but uh, I'm not going to help you continue in a poor choice. So, so see, that's where things get a little bit more um, gray than how people want to paint them. Yeah. Because generally when you say something like that, people go, oh, I see, your love with, comes with conditions. Yeah. And your, your rebuttal is, no, you living in my house comes with conditions. <laughs> I can love you wherever you want to be. <laughs> right, right. But like you living in my place, that is conditional based on you changing X amount of behavior. Right? And, right. and, and so, but people want to draw with a much well, a broader brush than that. And, say, and, and, and they'll use the name of Christ to do it. They will say, look, you need to love uh, this way and, and God's love is never any. That's true. Uh, but like this man who is choosing to live, we'll even put it in a Christian aspect, to live his life in a way apart from the teachings of Jesus. That's what happens at my home. And like if you if that's not how you're living, then you know you can't stay here. Is is that fair? Is to say, look, if you don't follow Jesus, actually my my door's not open to you. Because <laughs> it's not dangerous. Let's say it's not dangerous behavior that he's in, he's doing. 
right? He's not he's not uh, dealing drugs out of your out of your garage. He is merely cheating on his wife with another woman at your place. Not illegal, certainly not Christ following. It's destructive to him, just like selling drugs out of my garage. Truth, yeah. truth. So like the the the, the measure. I mean, you could measure. Um, you know what what potential physical harm may be coming to him or my family related to his presence. But like. In general, would I say, hey, can I use your house to just continue to destroy myself? I'd be like, well, no, no, you cannot do that. I'm going to destroy myself anyway. Might I as well do it in comfort <laughs> and in the notion of your love? Because like, to pay me rent? Because if you say, because here's the thing, is like realistically, Nick could say, hey, I get your concerns, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it anyway. So, yeah. you know, you're not actually helping me to move one way or the other. That, that's kind of off the table. So are you going to let me be homeless then? Yes. Yeah. Yes, you're choosing. Are you going to let you be homeless? Yes, right. You're making the choice to be homeless. Yeah, yeah. You have a house. You have a wife. <laughs> yeah. You choose to not live with either one of those. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it's our advice then to this lady. Uh, yeah, you don't have to let this man move in. You don't have to get over it. The answer is no. You don't want anything to do with this, and that's okay. Go ahead and forgive, but don't let him live there. Yeah. 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 And I think there's um. Oh wait, wait. This this has come up multiple times um, in conversation with us, but I think. Like, the, like, I think there's a difference in um, walking the road with someone who wants to be going that direction and being the person that is attempting to drag them that way. Like, you're, you you simply cannot solve someone's problem by dragging them around. Like, I think there are aspects of where, like, if you can be the person that, like, is the confronter that says, look, you're heading down the wrong path, it needs to shift, but, like, you're physically doing anything to force them or try to make them live a life that they don't particularly intend to live. Like you're, you're, um, you're exercising less freedom than what God has given them to exercise. And so, um, I feel like that's not going to work out for you. If God deemed that it is, that it is appropriate that people get to make their own decisions. Um, I don't know why you think you're going to have more power over their lives or that you've given them more grace by restricting it. That what, from what God has allowed. And so, you know, yeah, to the extent that he wants to work, say, look, I, I want to get back to my wife. She won't take me back. I need a place to stay while I try to work on this. Yeah, okay, I can I can walk that path with you. Yes, you can stay at my house as long as that remains to be the case. But no, you cannot destroy yourself at my house and continue to harm this woman at my from as my place as the home base. Like, you're going to have to work at the Home Depot and figure out how to pay your own rent in, in lieu of, uh, you know, moving in the right direction. I, I, I think that's, I do not, that is not outside of Christ's teaching. That is not a, a refusal to show grace or love or forgiveness. Um, that is simply a reality of you not facilitating um, people destroying themselves or others. Like there's just, like there's no call that says you have to uh, do all these things so that other people may be destroyed. Secular says, it's difficult, but I'll refrain from commenting on your brother's morals or judgment. Whether you should get into the middle of this mess because Nick's family isn't a question I can answer. And you won't know the answer until after you have discussed it with your husband. I mean, that was the biggest spate of non-advice I've ever heard. Yeah. Dear so-and-so, what should I do? Thanks, secular. Nothing. <laughs> I've got nothing. Ask <laughs> your husband. See what he thinks. Yeah. <laughs> Postscript. I'm so mad I changed my mind about not being judgmental. It would be a poetic justice if the niece met a handsome hunk her age and dumped your brother. <laughs> Yeah, that would set everything right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. That'll that'll put the the shine the light in a dark room, chase them shadows out with more shadows. <laughs> yeah, drop this guy. Make sure she shacks up with some other kind of hunky dory. Good call, secular. <laughs> All right, let's do let's do one more. Okay, let's see. Uh, 
Holy cow, yeah, okay. Dear Life from the Path, In 1985, I met a lovely divorced lady with two adorable children. The three of us got along well. A year later, I married into this family. Until then, I had no children of my own. The kids had regular visits with their father. The first Father's Day after I married their mom, we arranged for them to spend the weekend with him. When they returned home that Sunday night, they were exhausted and off to bed they went. I did some thinking about the idea of celebrating holidays and realized there are holidays in every month except August. Even a rodent gets his day in February. What's that rodent? Groundhog? Groundhog Day. This guy's, she's sharp, Mike. He's a modeler. He's a, he's a comedy man. <laughs> a man full of comedy. My family and I discussed it and came up with the idea for Step Parents Day on the second day in August. When that day arrived, we all went to church and then to brunch. The kids gave me cards and a nice gift. It was a wonderful day, and it became a tradition every year after that. I wrote a letter about it to our mayor. He sent me back an official-looking document with his signature proclaiming the second Sunday in August to be Step Parents Day in our city. It was gratifying. Dear Life from the Path, please let your listeners with blended families know that they may want to observe this special day, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose they need a day, right? I mean, signed <coughs> Professor Wildman. <laughs> I always thought it was awkward on Mother's Day. I like, I never called my dad's wife, who was not my mom. Right. And Cheryl's like, you're gonna call Dolores? I'm like, well, why would I? She's not my mom. Right. Yeah, I, I struggled with this myself. Uh, you know, because my wife is like that. She's like, we gotta call this person or go over here and send cards. I'm like, I only have one mother. Yeah. She goes, all these girl, all these people are mothers. And I said, to other people. <laughs> they said, these, are, these are not my mothers. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're mothers to other people. They're like, you're heartless. I'm like, no, I just have one mom. I don't, I don't understand this massive output that we're doing here. Cards are leaving the house at a ridiculous rate. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I get that. I mean, it's, it's kind of a nice sentiment. I feel like you could still do it on a... I mean, maybe they don't want to take away from their dad by doing, like, giving two Father's Day things. Yeah. If they like it. So they, I mean, I kind of like it. Although, I mean, it does, it is wild man territory to say, I thought of something, it's necessary that everyone else will do the same. <laughs> yeah, dear everybody, yeah. I thought of this idea, I implemented it, I thought it was wonderful. A crazy model with lots of dads. <laughs> I, sent a, I sent a letter to the mayor. <laughs> he said it was wonderful. Now, do you guys want to hear about it too? So you can know how wonderful it is. <laughs> okay, you're either Mr. Rogers. Which I'm doubting, or you're just weird, <laughs> you know. Like, hey, that's the thing I don't understand. It's like you've come up with something that works for your family. I'm happy for you. What made you feel the need to spread it around? You know, yeah, like yeah. tell your friend, you know, or like, yeah. hey, uh, brother of mine, we do this at my place and it is working splendidly. Oh, that's cool. Because it's even pretty self-indulgent. I mean, it's like this is what made me feel special. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, you're right. It's not like the kids created the day. Yeah, yeah. You created the day. And it's not like you were outside of a, a, a looking in. Like you were just a regular single guy yeah. who thought step-parents were getting the rub. So you thought you'd help it along. Yeah. No, you waited until you were a step-parent. And now all of a sudden, you get a day. I need my day. <laughs> yeah. It's bold, at the least. It's bold. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, secular uh, replies to this man. Your letter made me smile. Yeah, I bet it would. When I went online to learn more about it, I discovered that for more than 20 years, there's been a National Step Family Day observed on September 16th. <laughs> Take that. Uh, awkward. Oh. oh. Yours is called Kwanzaa. <laughs> what do you call that? Oh, Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa, yeah. It didn't sound right. <laughs> oh, Thunderstolen. I'm sorry. It's already existed. John, who thinks he just invented the square today. <laughs> you may want to consider adding it to your calendar because it's a day that celebrates all members of the blended family. 
not just the parents. <laughs> oh man. Here's the thing. Uh stepfather man, he was he really wanted to name the day uh Greg Day. <laughs> but no one would go for it. He was <laughs> He was just outgregged by secular. <laughs> this is a day for everyone. <laughs> okay, last one, ready? Yep. Your life from the path. My future sister in law, Lita, and her daughter came over from overseas to visit for a few weeks. It was their first time in the U.S. They never met my family, and I decided a bowling excursion would be a good way for them to meet my sister, Eileen, and her family. We all had a great time. Later that evening, Eileen texted me, saying a friend of hers was recently diagnosed with lipedema, and Lita may have it as well, based on her body type. I ignored the text, but didn't think to delete it. A few days later, my fiancé, fiancé, what's the difference between a fiancé and a fiancé? Spelled the same? Am I just saying it wrong? Yeah, you're just saying it wrong. It's got two E's on it. F-I-A-N-C-E-E. Oh, I don't know. It feels like you are being fianced <laughs> if you say, I'm a fiancé. I'll see what I can find out. A few days later, my fiancé saw the text. She's furious with my sister. My fiancé says Eileen was rude and judgmental, and she shouldn't judge someone she just met because Eileen isn't in the medical profession. Eileen says she was only pointing out something she had noticed and wanted us to know in case my future sister-in-law ever complained about it. Was my sister Adeline to do it? Okay, hold on. What is lipedema? Does that have something to do with being big, big bone? <laughs> what? <laughs> hold on. How do you spell it? L-I-P-E-dema. Oh, man. The suggestion were lipedema arms. Uh, oh, yeah. Let's see. It happens when fat is distributed in an irregular way beneath your skin, usually in the buttocks and legs. Well, I mean, there's no polite way to see. I think you got the, I think you got the fat butt. Oh, okay, okay. It's like the elephantitis for a leg. Hold on, I don't know. I don't know about this. Hold on, hold on. I'll, sh I'll show you what it is. The lymphedema is what I was just looking at. So here's the here, Mike. Here, I'll, I'll put it up on the screen for you. <laughs> yeah, do it. You have an awkward body shape. I mean, granted, I don't know how you say that outright. Although you aren't in the medical profession, there I mean, it is. So lymph, oh. lymphedema. It's like boy, that like that's significant. That means the lymphs aren't working. Yeah, they're yeah. not draining like they're supposed to be. But the lymphedema, like, so this poor lady's got like a significant distribution up top of her leg, and then I mean, I don't know. How I mean, how would a non-medical professional be able to look and know the difference between that? I don't, I don't know. And Which just one someone. Did she have? What's that? Which one did they choose? The one on the right, the lipedema. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the not the lopsided lymphedema. Yeah, I don't know. You see, my wife has to be careful of the one on the left because uh, oh. when they looked at her lymph nodes, they're they're damaged, so she has to oh, yeah. stockings so that doesn't happen. Oh, you're right. Really? Like that. Like the compression. But, but, but if she didn't do anything, yeah, if she didn't do anything with compression socks, it would, it would eventually happen. So, so all this, uh, the reason the research being done here is because obviously she is. Eileen texted me saying a friend of hers was recently diagnosed with lipedema. Okay. And Lita, the visiting lady, may have it as well based on her body type. I'd leave that one alone. Would you text it to a buddy of yours that's not going to show it to anybody? <laughs> no, I'm gonna. I'm gonna assume they go to the doctor once in a while. Even if they get sick, at some point the doctor will say, "Hey, looking at your body type, you look like you have lipedema." I mean, it, to a certain extent, it is like what you have a cough and a fever. You got Wagner's. You got Wagner's disease, right? Because one guy you met 
has this oddball Wagner's disease, and then you decide that your non-professional opinion is a cough and a sneeze is going to be Wagner's. Right? And so, like, it is a little bit out of left field that you can just pick lipedema because you see big legs or something, you know? Yeah. Okay. So, well, hold on. Let, what was the question? Was my sister out of line to text that? What? To her sister. But then no, but no one said it to the lady? Right. And, but the fiancé saw it. The fiancé saw it and is super mad because they feel like the sister was being judgmental of the body shape of the visitor by suggesting they might have the... No, I mean, I don't think it's wrong to text. I don't think it's wrong to text it. Really? I mean, she is not a medical professional. How the heck does she know about lipedema? She knows one guy that's been diagnosed with it. Uh, well, right. I mean, I'm not saying that she's right or wrong. I'm just saying, like, I mean, it doesn't. It's not an outlandish thing to. Is it? it, it let me ask you this: Is it different than saying, "Hey, you think Ted should have that mole checked out"? <laughs> I mean, this is. This seems like the same thing. What do you think? No, it'd be like the the guy. Yeah, well, it'd be like the guy saying, "I think that mole that Ted has is cancerous." Yeah. Or, or I, 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 not just hey, you should check it out. But here is my diagnosis. <laughs> I think it is. Ca- I think that's a cancerous mole on Dave's head. Well, right. So, but here's the thing: is like, like you because the guy's not a doctor, you have to in, you you have to invest in it to be offended by it. It'd be like if the guy at the gas, sta- gas station looked at me and goes, "Hey, you're looking a little pale. I wonder if you have brain cancer." I'd be like, you know, you work at the gas station. I'm not putting. I'm not investing anything into that. <laughs> I'll that's true. Chemo today. <laughs> yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, I think it's it's fine to text. Uh, there's no reason to overreact about it. Like he obviously doesn't know. So or yeah. she doesn't know. Yeah. They said to be need to not be so nosy, and 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 the fiance needs to just kind of lighten up a little bit too. Don't you? Yeah, that's true. If she would have texted a bit like, "Hey, by the way, your future in-laws are are fatty fatties." You know, that's straight out offensive. Yeah. Uh, are you? Th- is the worry that they think that the sister is trying to, to criticize, but doing it in like a sly, demeaning way without actually having said it, and they've therefore came up with this lipedema diagnosis. I mean, that's a real in-round way to insult somebody. I mean, real in-round, especially when you're talking to your sister already. No one talks like that to their sister. They just be like, hey, that lady be. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, within a family text, you're pretty straightforward, and you don't do all this. And so, yeah, I, you're right. I think it was harmless. Yeah. All right. Segular says, uh, the question was, was my sister out of line to do it? Segular says, not knowing Eileen, I won't accuse her of being rude or judgmental. Her motive may have been pure when she mentioned her concern in the light of her friend's diagnosis. While your fiancé had a point when she said your sister doesn't have the expertise to make a medical diagnosis, the text that upset her was meant for you, not her, and she wouldn't have been reviewing it without your permission. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I don't know. By the way, you sound you sound ridiculous, Mike. It's it said uh, fiance either way how it's spelled. I, I to be fair, I explained to you how it was spelled, and you said I'm not sure. Yeah. So uh, here's the here's the here's the difference. Uh, fiance refers to a male that is engaged. Both fiance and male have one e in them. Fiance or fiance with the two e's refers to a female that is engaged. Both fiance and female have two e's in them. Two e's in them. So you, you wouldn't be able to tell audibly because you would say both of them fiancé, but if you're going to write them down, uh, it has two E's on it. If it's a if it's a lady who's engaged, it's got one E if it's a guy. Especially if she has the uh, lipedema. Yeah. i got to be honest, it's a weight off me. I've been worried about that my whole life. And finally, <laughs> I'm free to write away. I've straightened it out. 
You're good to go. All right, you've been listening to Life from the Path. Thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, we're glad to be back. Uh, if you got any comments on the show that are good, shoot us an email, info at If you hate the show, shoot, I've forgotten Roloff's email address at the, at the Truth Network. It's this, uh, C. Roloff at truthnetwork.com. Yeah, try that. Uh, anyway, go, just Google Chris Roloff and Truth Network and find an email address and tell them you hate the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do that. That seems worth doing. Anyway, uh, we will. I mean, it's very possible. We'll see you next week. Thanks for having one of us. Uh, you've been listening to Life in the Path. Uh, in the meantime, be faithful and means God will handle the ends. You've been listening to Life in the Path.